Hi there, this is Mark Icero, and welcome to Article Club, a new experiment in community reading where we read and discuss one great article every month, and we invite the author to participate as well. This month, we're discussing The Miseducation of the American Boy by Peggy Orenstein, which was on the cover of The Atlantic back in January. And this week, I got the chance to speak with Ms. Orenstein, which was delightful, and we had a great conversation where she answered our questions and was super kind and thoughtful. So let's get right into that conversation, but one last thing before we do, we're having our discussions next Sunday the 26th about the article, and if you've already signed up, great, because they are actually both full. However, if you're not signed up yet, but still want to take part in it, please go to highlighter.cc discussion and let me know because there's always a chance that someone might not be able to make it. All right, so let's get to the interview. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I'm really appreciative. So are the other folks in Article Club. And the first question that I that we always ask is, why'd you say yes in the first place? To doing this? Yeah, to doing this. <laughs> Because you asked so nicely, you made it kind of impossible to say no. You do a very good request letter. Oh, that's good to hear. I'll, I'll keep on doing that. It's great that you are with us and just really, really appreciative. Do you get excited still when you see your work on the front of the Atlantic? Does that still excite you? Mm, that's such an interesting question. I mean, the, the funny thing about this was that I didn't see the magazine for a really long time after the piece came out. So I had to go find it. And it's not that easy to find magazines anymore. People would say, I saw your magazine. You know, that's like, where, where? I gotta find it. But yeah, there's always that moment of, you know, of, of I, I always feel like I want to show my mom, you know, my mom is not, is, is, is gone, is dead. But I always have that moment of wanting to go, see mom, it's the, look, it's another one. Isn't that exciting? She's the only person who ever got as excited as I did. It is another one. And it's also great after Girls and Sex that Boys and Sex, also a bestseller. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know if that would be the case. I, I really think that we're in a moment that made it possible. I'm not sure that it would be true five years ago or 10 years ago. But, you know, when I for years I was doing work with girls and I, and I wrote about girls and, and in all kinds of ways, including girls and sex. And parents of boys would always kind of say to me, gosh, I'm kind of glad I have a boy. You know, I don't have to worry about these things. And I think, really? But I think that the combination of the Me Too movement and the discussions of consent on high school and college campuses have really sensitized parents and made them realize that in a lot of ways, their jobs are harder and they, they have to raise good men. And what does that mean in these times? And what are the forces that push boys in another direction, possibly, whether on purpose or not, you know, or, or just by default? And so I, it was really true that in the wake of girls and sex, parents of boys boys themselves, girls, you know, everybody's like, when are you going to write about boys? And I wasn't sure because at that time, you know, I wasn't sure that parents were going to get interested. I wasn't sure that boys would have anything to say. You know, I thought, what if all I get is a bunch of transcripts that consist of, nope, uh-huh, you know, yep. like they're not exactly chatty, yep. right? Yep. So I really worried about all those. And plus I looked like I could be their mom. And the biggest surprise, I think, of the book more than anything, or the research more than anything, was how much boys wanted to talk mm -hmm. and how insightful they were about narrating their own experience. And, and I do think, again, that that partly goes back to this moment in time where I think a lot of boys and men are grappling with masculinity and grappling with their own sexual histories and grappling with 
what it means to be you know a, a a positive full human being as a male right now did you find that out from the start that they wanted to talk to you or did you feel like you had to do something different in order to make that space for boys well you know i i feel like i learned a lot doing the girl book so as you said i did girls and sex first and even though i've been writing about girls for a long time when i started doing girls and sex the first few interviews were a disaster and it was because I really, and, and I had no agenda going in, just like I really didn't with boys, although I was more knowledgeable when I went with boys, but I just had kind of a sense, I'd written a little bit about how sex played into some gender stuff with girls over the years, but I just had a sense like, hmm, I think there's more to this. Maybe I could write a book. I wonder what girls would have to say. So I went off and did these interviews. And the first few, you know, I, I, girls would tell me things and I would just look aghast. You know, I would just look and go, what? You do what? Why, you know, why would you want to do that? I don't get it. What are you talking? You know, like, and, and I would look, I would judge and, and my judgment was obvious. And so they, those first few girls, after I spoke with them the first time, they never spoke to me again. They wouldn't return my texts. They wouldn't return my emails. It was like, no, you're dead to us. And so I had to really learn. And this was, this I think was just universal with, with all the kids that I talked to. I had to learn how to listen without judgment and to really elicit the stories that they wanted to tell and not to, if I did feel like shock, surprise, dismay, whatever, not let that show on my face, yeah. which was a real lesson as a parent. I'm a parent also. So I can't do that as well as a parent. My daughter would be the first to tell you, but, but I try. How old is your daughter? She is 16. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. That age. Yeah. So, but the boys, they, they keep on texting you. They FaceTime you. Yeah. Is that different yeah. also? Why do you feel like they continue or at least continue to reach out to you? I think it's because it was somebody for them to talk to, you know? I mean, they would say so often, I never had a conversation like this before, you know, not only with, not with an adult, but with a person of my own age, and it was really valuable to them. And so being able to sort of reflect back on that and sometimes get back in touch around it, especially if it was somebody that I talked to repeatedly, was I, I I think it became sort of a, a relationship. Mm -hmm. And with some of them, not, you know, now it's been a little while, but I still have a handful of them that I talk to all the time, mm -hmm. which is, I suppose, a little weird. Yeah, but no, I think yeah, not. it's, yeah. uh, they're reaching out. I mean, that's so important. Yeah. There's this one boy in the book, I was just gonna give an example of this boy who, he's, I don't think he's in the article, but he, he's a boy in a chapter, he frames a chapter that's about sexual assault of boys. Or, or unwanted sex violation of boys. And he frames this chapter and, and it's a pretty powerful story. And he recently texted me because I had done a spinoff article about that, that story too for New York Magazine. And he had uh, printed it out or somehow shared it with everybody in his fraternity. He's in college now, this was in high school because he said he wanted them. And then he told them it was him. Wow. Which was really interesting. Wow. Because when I met him, he was nowhere near that kind of openness. And he said he and he said that being part of the book had helped him to come to terms and be able to talk about this. But he said he wanted his frat brothers to know how very seriously he took safety in sexual situations and why. And that and I mean that was an amazing experience for me to hear back from him about that. That's great to hear because a large portion of this article, you talk about how boys want to step up either to tell their own stories mm -hmm. or they want to be emotional and they feel like they can't because therefore they wouldn't belong. And so right. it just seems like this is a real gift that you've given him. It was, 
well, and he to me, but it, I mean, I, I felt like it was a, a real act of courage and also personal growth on his part because I remember when I first started talking to him and I met him through another boy that I was interviewing that he was really worried about being identifiable. Like that was his big fear was that somebody that he knew might be able to identify him. And the fact that he's not saying, here, here's an article. It's about me. We need to talk about this is astonishing. I mean, it, was, it brought tears to my eyes when he texted me that. I think that's great. Yeah. And you talk a whole lot about in the book about how you came to know these 100 plus boys. And then in the article, of course, there's only time enough for a few of them. One thing that's really on our mind, a lot of article clubbers were asking, is why these boys in particular? There is this idea that, hey, they're mostly white. They're, they're going to private or fancy schools. Uh, that's sort of an artifact of the article. Yeah. So the, the book itself, I mean, that's the Atlantic picked a particular slice that would make it coherent. But the, the book itself, the boys span a real range in terms of demographic. Because in the girl book, all the girls were either college bound or in college. And I, and I did that for specific reasons for that book. Mm-hmm. I felt like I, need, I wanted and needed to do the parallel in this book. So they are in that demographic. They're college bound or in college. But beyond that, they span a real range of ethnicity. I was much more conscious of that, in fact, in this book, a range of sexuality, sexual orientation, gender identity, or assigned at birth identity versus gender identity. And they're from all over the country, big cities, small towns, public, private schools. So it's, it's a much broader range than the Atlantic article would perhaps lead you to believe. Yeah, I, I agree. The book is obviously much more comprehensive. Um, in the article, though, you did say that these boys might be the ones to set cultural norms to the degree that maybe like maybe like a brett kavanaugh or whatever and like is that also is that also why you you went in that that was why um i went for the college bound college group and, and that was true with the girls too because when i was working with the girls i thought if i told you that you know a lot of girls who were disadvantaged in a variety of ways or under resourced or underserved were disconnected from their bodies and were not able to assert their wants and needs and limits in sexual relationships, you kind of go, yeah, that has nothing to do with me, you know? Mm-hmm. And I wanted people who were in positions to make change, to be in power, to, to recognize that this was about them. And with the boys, what was really interesting was that around issues of sexual misconduct, that denial would be thicker the more elite the guys were. Mm -hmm. So boys in really elite situations and elite schools would tend to say, like in private colleges would tend to say, oh, it's those, it's those um, boys in the state schools who do that stuff against all evidence. Yeah. Because that is absolutely not true statistically. Um, And it was like their, you know, their superior SAT scores, you know, made them less likely to do these things rather than just better insulated from the results. Yeah. And, and I was in a school in California at one point and um, talking to, and I, I was there, I was at a party, a freshman party, as one is as an adult so often, um, <laughs> watching kids drink. And, and these guys asked me what I was doing there. And I said, I was, you know, I was, I was, I was, I was using, I wanted a scene for the book on hookup, for the chapter on hookup culture. And they assumed I was writing about sexual misconduct, though I, I wasn't. I really was just looking at like a typical party. And they said, oh, well, you know, it's those boys at the state schools who do, who do that sort of thing. And I said, you know, 
Brock Turner was at Stanford. Yep. And they said, oh, yeah, but he wasn't there on merit. He was an athlete. So it's like there's always a way to sort of push it away, push it away, push it away. And I think it's really important to see how that works in these elite contexts that allows those guys to find cover and continue to move forward and become Brett Kavanaugh. And that was also more of a public place where they may not have been as intimate with you and not as honest. Maybe it was a place where they had to be performative also, or they had to save face. I think they really believed that. Okay. I think they absolutely believe that because I heard it so many times, both, you know, I mean, I, I remember there was another, this story didn't actually make it into the book, but there was a guy at a very elite school and we had, a, and he was in a fraternity and he told me how my fraternity doesn't do this and nothing like that ever happens. We don't, you know, this isn't an issue for us, misconduct. And then I happened to see him a couple weeks later or a month later, I guess, a month later, we went out, we went out to a bar and he, he said, you're never going to guess what happened. Two weeks after I talked to you, we had a party and one of the brothers who was really drunk actually slapped, he hit a girl and who he was mad at for insulting him in some, insulting his masculinity in some way. Yep. And so they, they, dis, they immediately kicked him out of the frat. And then he said, the thing was a couple of weeks later, it happened again with another guy. So it happened twice. And yes. then the kind of sorority that they tended to be paired with, the officers from that sorority came over with a letter and read them a list of all of the things that the girls had endured in in that particular fraternity in their parties and stuff. And this boy that I was talking to who was really just, you know, a lovely guy. He said he was one of the officers of the frat and he said he listened to that and he almost burst into tears. Yep. He said, I just, it was so painful to hear. And he said, I had no, you don't really know you know, you know, maybe like some of the guys that you know are maybe a little shitty to girls, but you don't really know what that means. And hearing it all laid out like that was devastating. So the upside was that he decided to institute programming in the in the fraternity for sex education for, you know, not only just anti-assault, but pro, you know, pro positive sexuality programming. And I really what I the reason it didn't make in the book was that I had really wanted to follow him as he did that. And he was game for it. And his fraternity brothers just went, no, <laughs> no, you're not going to let some adult woman into our frat. No. <laughs> just watching that was interesting, watching the kind of denial, the, the, what I think is the normal denial. And then that sort of coming to terms, the reckoning. And then in his case, the really wonderful part was then the acting to try to make it better. That was why I wanted to follow him. I wanted to see somebody trying to make it better. And I think he, he, he did, you know, try as much as he could. I don't, you know, he, he I, I did talk to him again and he instituted some of that programming. He wasn't sure if it would continue once he left. Yeah. In the book, you have some positive stories of, of boys and young men who are doing things either to transform mm -hmm. their own lives or, or others and colleges. The article is a little bit less positive just because it's smaller. And, and yet Cole, for example, who is the main mm -hmm. character who everybody wants you to talk about, he, it seems like he's trying, but right at the beginning, I would love for you to talk about your first impressions of Cole yeah. because you said, oh no. Yeah, he was a stereotype. I mean, or he appeared to be a stereotype. I walked around the corner and there he was. And he was like the the stereotype of the jockey white boy. You know, he's like his neck went right into his jawline and he's sitting, you know, in in this, you know, his legs splayed and his hands on his knees and this kind of blank expression. And I just thought, I'm going to talk to this guy. I mean, what is he going to say? 
And I thought this is going to be such a hard interview because sometimes they were hard interviews. And he ended up being complete. I mean, he had so much to say. He was so interesting. He was so engaging. He was so thoughtful. He, he showed me the picture of his girlfriend who he described as a feminist and, you know, um, somebody he really respected and, and, so, and so smart. And he talked about his difficulty as a guy kind of dealing with the hierarchy of guys and whether it was, you know, when he first came to the school, he was actually a lower income kid in an affluent school. And so that worried him and being, you know, trying to figure out where he felt fit in the pecking order, making friends with guys, not wanting to appear weak. And he finally found his people on the crew team. And the story that I tell, and so he, and he also was going to be joining the military after high school. So he was a little bit different than some of the boys. He was going to a military college, but he was really navigating a, a very hyper-masculine world as a boy who valued egalitarianism. So I felt, I felt like he kind of put things in very sharp relief in that way. And the story that he tells is about locker room banter and the ways that guys tend to talk about women and sex in the locker room, which is a very weaponized way of talking often, right? Like, what do they do? They they pound, they hammer, they bang, they nail, they hit that, they tap that, they pipe that. You know, it's like a construction site, right? It's not like something that happens between two people. So he's standing there one day and this guy, one of the older boys starts talking about, you know, it's talking trash about some girl that he knows. And Cole and one of his friends call him out on it. And the other boys make fun of them. And so the next time somebody says something, Cole said he didn't say anything, but his friend continued to say to talk about it and to say something, to call the boys out. And he said the more he saw his friend step up and he stepped back, the more that boy, the other boy, um, guys weren't listening to him. He said they didn't seem to like him as much and he lost all his social capital. And, and Cole said, but and I was sitting here with buckets of it left, but I wasn't spending any. And I don't know what to do. I don't know. How, you know, I, I don't want to have to choose between my dignity and these guys, but how do I make it so I don't have to choose? And it really struck me. And I thought about Cole so much because Michael Thompson, who's a psychologist who writes about boys, has said that it's silence in the face of cruelty and misogyny in which boys become men. And so it, in talking to boys, it wasn't only about what they did say, but what they didn't, couldn't, shouldn't, wouldn't. And I think that that's sort of how Cole fit in there. Can you say more about why he thought that he couldn't say he Cole is not sort of like mid-level or low level like some of the other boys in the book. Why do you feel like he did not feel like he could speak to his friends about that? I think he felt that even so his status had a precariousness to it, especially at that point because he was a sophomore in high school. I think as he got older in high school, he tried to be more of an ex of, of a respectful example but that he, I mean, a lot of boys feel this kind of teeter-totter. I recently was talking to a boy who came to a reading that I did, a young man, and he'd been a division one basketball player. And he was really concerned about what he heard in the locker room. He said, you know, I don't know what's real, what's not real. It seems to create a culture though that I just worry about how some of these guys actually act based on what they say or what it might give other guys permission to feel they can do when they hear guys talking like this. But he said, I don't know how to say anything. I don't know what to do because, and I thought this is a really interesting point because I'm not a high level athlete, so I wouldn't have thought of this. But he said, when you go out on the court, you have to act as a unit and you have to have total trust in one another. And if I start you know, coming in and challenging people on this stuff, it's gonna fracture that trust. 
And that's going to be a problem for us as a team. So I don't know what to do about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I thought, interesting, right? Yeah. You, you talk about how sports is so important. Loyalty is so important. Obviously, the military has the same sort of loyalty code. You got me. Fraternity. Yeah. You got me thinking. Wall Street. <laughs> Absolutely. You got me. Silicon Valley. Yeah. You got me thinking, though, like. Is it also a language piece? Because Cole knows about toxic masculinity. They can talk yeah, about consent. Like it seems like they've done all of like the workshops, but then yeah. when it comes, I mean, obviously the locker room is going to be a different entire language. It's almost like they don't have yeah. the language. Is that, do you think that that's accurate? Well, that's really interesting. I think we haven't given boys the support to figure out what to do in this situation. And one of the things that was interesting about sports to me was that you know, a lot of boys really loved sports and they had quit sports that they loved because they didn't like that, you know, that culture. And so people who were really good at something or who played for the love of it were being locked out because they just didn't want to, you know, be part of that. And at the most extreme end, there was a boy who had gone to, I can't remember if this is in the article or not, but the, the team that he was on was really, the, boy, the boys talked horribly about women, they talked horribly about gay people, and the coaches did too. And it was at a super liberal, liberal arts college. And he was so offended by it. He had, gotten a, he had been recruited to that school and he was so offended that he transferred. Mm -hmm. um, because he, if he had just dropped off the team, the school was so small that he didn't feel that he could escape the kind of social pressures that would come with that. I mean, that's extreme. But it's real. And, and I think, you know, when, so this boy, the boy who was the Division One athlete that I talked to, you know, subsequently from after publishing the book, he asked me for advice. He emailed me later. And, and I ended up really thinking about, like, what can we offer boys in those situations? And I gave him sort of a, I, I don't think there's one magic bullet, but I gave him some multifocal ideas about different possibilities of ways that don't involve just, like, attacking somebody in, the, in you know, when they're vulnerable and feeling hyper-masculine because that's not going to work, that you could institute on a team situation or, an, or, or a frat situation or any kind of all-male situation that might help to allow so many boys who don't want to participate in that kind of behavior to see one another and, and bond together over it and create some social norming that would, that would stop it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, another thing I think about that happened after the book came out was there was a couple of weeks after the book came out, there was a law a state senator in Michigan who was having a press conference and he had a group of boys from an all boy, his, the all boys high school he had gone to were there like observing him or, you know, whatever he was doing them a favor to follow them around. And there was a 25 year old female reporter. And when the conference was over, he said, Hey, you should hang around. You'd have a lot of fun with these boys or they'd have a lot of fun with you. And the woman wrote a piece about that moment for her and it was really great. And it was all over the radio. It was got made national news. It was like a big thing for like a minute and a half. And I read it and I thought she really did a wonderful job of explaining the impact of comments like that on a young woman and on women in general in our lives. What she missed, not, and I don't fault her for this, but the piece that interested me was there was a group of like 20, those, there were 20 boys standing there. Mm -hmm. I imagine there were a goodly number of those boys who thought, oh my God, what did he just say? Yep. That's horrible. But couldn't do anything about that. So how do we help those boys 
you know, I mean, I don't know what you can say when there's an adult saying stuff, but I mean, how do you, in, in those contexts, how do we allow boys to be able to talk about things? How do we allow boys to, who, who authentically, I think 99% of them, you know, don't want to hear or say things like that? How do we help that culture thrive? Yeah, you talk a whole lot in the article about how boys want to intervene and they also want to be vulnerable. They want to share, they want to have great relationships. They want to have good sex and all that kind of stuff too. But And they're also adolescents who want to belong and don't want to defy the peer group and don't want to disrupt. I mean, it's all true. Yeah, and the, the word that I really was thinking a whole lot about is this word of hilariousness or being hilarious. Mm-hmm. And that's like another format, I feel, of like trying to, keep things silent is that is that yeah. what you noticed as well is that because it's like they want to be vulnerable but it's actually easier emotionally to just to call everything yeah. hilarious yeah 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 and and i mean i another thing that i was just thinking about that because so much has happened since i wrote the book I, I was talking to a group of 15 and 16 year old boys and one of them was saying i want to have those kinds of conversations that you talk about but i'm afraid that if i do even if guys are accepting in the moment that later on they'll turn around and use it as a weapon against me and so it does become easier to use hilarious. I became really interested. You know, there's certain words that would just catch my attention. And I hear them over and over. And it's a way that it's 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 a way to deflect, right? It's if, if something is if you think it's it's icky or it's it's unethical or it's sexist or misogynist or humiliating or degrading, you're always safe if you say it's hilarious. Nobody's ever going to make fun of you. Nobody ever is going to call you, you know, an epithet. Nobody's ever going to question your masculinity you can always go to hilarious, but it is a way to separate heads and hearts. It's another way that subverts compassion and empathy in boys. And what I really noticed was how often that's the first offense in some of the high profile rape cases that Mm -hmm. we've seen, especially among high schoolers, like the Steubenville case. What they said was, you know, there's a video that you can look at at YouTube where one of the boys is saying, rape's not funny, it's hilarious, mm-hmm. you know, or, or the rape of Daisy Coleman and Audrey Pott, both times, because, well, we thought we were just being funny, you know, so there's, there's a way, and the reason that that's the case is that what I, I got really, I got a little wonky about this, and there was this study that talked about how for something to be, for something that's morally offensive to be funny, we have to find it harmless, right? simultaneously offensive and harmless, so like a dead baby joke, right? You think it's offensive and harmless unless I started telling you all about how, you know, the parents really wanted the baby and the baby's birth and how happy they were. I mean, I can barely even say that, right? Mm-hmm. And then if I crack a dead baby joke, that would be really inappropriate. Mm-hmm. So similarly, you know, when guys say, talk about, you know, like rape jokes or, or other kinds of humor like that, it has to, they, you have to disidentify with the subject and you have to see that subject, that thing as harmless. Right. And so when you're talking about thinking rape, you know, saying rape is hilarious, that's very concerning. And it's particularly concerning for bystanders because if something's hilarious, you don't have to step in. It's no problem. But you would say to at least talk about it all the time, especially if you're in a parent or an adult role. I think it was your friend or somebody that you knew who, whenever there's some sort of bad or misogynist music that comes on to the okay. radio, is that is that sort of like your your stance? Because at the end of the book, you're saying that like sex ed classes are just not going to do it. Well, I wish they could. I mean, if they were good, you know, but but we don't have them. And we have, you know, this, it's not one talk, obviously. You know, it's it's a whole lot of interconnected subjects. And the trouble is, is that as, as adults, 
we have so abdicated responsibility for having discussions about sex, discussions about relationships, discussions about love, discussions about gender. Where we've left it with sex is basically that porn becomes the default sex educator right. for a generation of both young men and young women. And I don't think that's really the best place to be getting your sex education. So that that's that that's pretty much what's happening. And and I do think you can there's always opportunities to have these conversations, to have them in little ways and have them in big ways, whether it's, and it, you know, I, I can't give you a script because, you know, I, your child is your child. You could be four, they could be 14, they could be, who knows. But, but what I did offer was sort of a template of the types of conversations that we need to have with young people, whether, and sometimes, you know, it's not a parent. Sometimes it's somebody who's an uncle or somebody who's a, you know, a friend of the family or so, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to engage with kids on these subjects. And a lot of people who should be engaging with kids on these subjects should be like, you know, if you were going to be, well, I, I often liken it to table manners, right? Like if you know that you, if, if I sat you down and said, okay, Mark, my son, here is a knife and a fork. This is how you use them. You put your napkin in your lap, say, please pass the peas. Excuse me when you get up. Okay, you're done. Go forth and be polite. That's it. You know, that's not going to happen. And, and we know, you know, like you have to tell your kid 370,562 times to say thank you before they do it on their own, right? So why do we think, I mean, I would argue that, you know, sex and relationships are at least as important as table manners to our greater well-being. So to think that we can have one conversation or no conversations is is really folly. And we are just we just have to get it together. Even though I know that for most people, their parents didn't talk to them. And so it's just like a history, a deep history of not having conversation. But I think that we now know as we look at a culture that has where we recognize that, you know, certain masculine norms are really deeply unhealthy for boys and for whoever they interact with as partners, where we know that kids are not developing a appropriate understanding of consensual sexual behavior, and that there's just inordinate rates of sexual misconduct and assault, and where kids are being, you know, kind of inundated with, with pornography and with a highly sexualized mainstream media. I don't know how, we don't have the luxury of silence anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I totally I totally agree. There's a couple article clubbers who are, who are parents who want sort of like the one answer and it's not like table mm-hmm. manners. Like what you're saying is like, let's just keep on talking to our kids. And then there's a lot of article clubbers who are also educators who are not doing sex ed classes. And it seems like it would be the same thing. Like in every single opportunity, go ahead and talk mm-hmm. about it. And I would think that coaches in particular, there's this quote from the article, we have to say not just what we don't want from boys, but what we yeah, do. But what we do want because yeah. I, I feel like the stereotype of a coach, uh, especially uh, who is who identifies as a man, is like respect women or right. or like don't do this. And right. you're saying do actually the opposite is like talk about talk about it a lot. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, the respect women thing. That's what most boys get told. And as one guy, this is kind of related to the table manager piece. He said, telling a guy to respect women is like telling somebody don't run over any little old ladies and then handing them the car keys. I mean, you never think you're going to run over any little old ladies, but you still don't know how to drive, Right. you know? So one thing I can say to article clubbers who are parents or have boys in their lives that they personally are talking to is that at my website, which is my name, PeggyOrnstein.com, there's a list of resources 
for all these topics that are covered in boys and sex and girls and sex and beyond for for things that would be useful in terms of trying to put together your own script based on your child's age, stage, gender, et cetera, et cetera. And educators, you know, a lot of times there's things like I think about ways, I mean, I think in other classes too, but I'm an English major, so I think about English classes, there's always opportunities to have these discussions about how what you're reading connects out into the world. And this is just another place and another way to to do that. I mean, whether you, you know, like if you're reading Othello, for instance, Mm -hmm. what could be a better story to use to discuss relationships and gender and race and all these things, you know, that, that stuff can all be amazingly relevant. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't even have to be like in some central Othello type of piece. It could be current events like you talk about in the book. Yeah. It can be just like, what's going on in the world? Let's talk about it. Let's offer a, a, a space to talk about it. Yeah. And and I did, you know, I've had a, a converse, conversations with my daughter and I separately in different rooms, but we were both watching um, sex, the, the, the Netflix show Sex Education, mm-hmm. which is fantastic, by the way, in almost all ways. I have a couple of quibbles with it, but it's it's really fantastic. And there is a story arc in the second season that is about a, a girl who experiences somebody exposing himself and masturbating onto her on a bus. And, and the arc goes through kind of her reckoning with that and trying to, you know, saying it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, and then kind of falling apart and then how it all resolves. And we were talking about it and I said, you know, it's really interesting though. I find that in American culture right now, it's a lot easier to talk to our kids about sexual violence than sexual pleasure. Yep. And like, why do you think that is? And she immediately got up and left the room. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like shouting out, but you hear me, right? You hear me. I know you hear me. So I, I do think that that's, that that's true too, that, that, that if we are comfortable, we're comfortable with the don'ts. Yeah. And I think we do need to get more comfortable. And it's a, it's, it's a muscle. I mean, we have an atrophied muscle. We have never had these conversations. We don't know how. You have to learn how. But talking about, you know, what, what a, a positive, pleasurable, reciprocal, mutual encounter can and should be. Talking about, you know, one of the things, and that's why I wrote, partly why I wrote these books, and, you know, and Boys and Sex, is that boys could look at this and question the script. Like, wow, you know, if hookup culture is being presented to me on college campuses, and I don't know what's going to happen now with that, by the way, but if that's being presented as being like the fun, you know, the most fun thing, the, the best sex, the best, is that, is that really true? Is that really right for me? Am I really enjoying that? What does that mean? Do I want something more than a partner that I'm just masturbating into? Like, what does all that mean to me? And and having boys talk about that. I mean, I think, I, I can't remember if this is in the article. There's a scene where, I think it is, where, where two of the boys are, are talking to one another through me. Nate, Nate and Wyatt, maybe it's not in there. No, I don't think it is in there. Nate and Wyatt are talking. Uh, Wyatt is a boy who has been mm-hmm. very heavily into his college hookup scene and is starting to feel, as he put it, that it was a bit masturbatory on my part and feeling like maybe he doesn't want to do that anymore and it hasn't served him and he doesn't feel good about himself. And he's asking himself a lot of questions. And Nate is a high school senior who's had a bad experience. He's in the in the article for sure. Yep. He had that bad experience with hookups. And he's off now. It's a year later. And he's looking at colleges that he wants to go to. And he's he texted me kind of out of the blue while I was in the middle of interviewing Wyatt and said, and Wyatt and I were talking on Skype. And, and Nate texted and says, WTF with hookup culture. It's like an orgy here. Am I supposed to go to Bone Town and worry about an emotional connection later or just forget about that part? What do I do? You know? And so I asked Wyatt, who I was talking to on Skype, and he said, 
you know, and they ended up having this incredible conversation through me about personal authenticity and resisting the script and who you, you know, looking at yourself as a human being. And, and I know that it meant a lot to me. So he, and then Nate said, thank you, this is what I needed to hear. And he sent me a little heart emoji. <laughs> and, uh, and I know that that had made a big impact on him because I, I stay in touch with him and he's just finished his sophomore year of college. And, and that made a difference to have that conversation to him going in. And I just think, you know, again, what if we could create situations where boys, they, they don't know each other. They never met, they never saw each other. They don't know each other's names. But they could have this conversation because of that. And what if we could make room for that just to allow a broader scope of humanity for a young man? I totally agree. There is hope. And it's really great that you share what the opportunities for hope are. And it's really great to be able to hear that story as well. So thank you. Yeah, I love that story. I love this book. I want to thank you so much for all of your time. Great. Thank, Thank you, you again for doing this. Thank you for the article. Thank you for the books. I've also read Girls and Sex, and it's just oh. wonderful to meet you and be able to talk to you. Thank you. Well, good luck, and thank you for this. It was really fun. Hey, it's Mark again, and thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Peggy Orenstein. If you did, you can sign up for Article Club at articleclub.org, or you can subscribe to The Highlighter, my free weekly newsletter where all these great articles come from. All you need to do is to go to highlighter.cc slash subscribe. Once again, I want to thank you for listening, and have a great week.